welcome to the Weather of the Mind podcast. I'm your host, Doug Krish. Good day to you. It's been too long. It's been too long. I miss you. Sincerely. I miss the days of the week-to-week podcast. I know the pace has slowed down. I, I do aspire at some point to get back to at least a pod every two weeks just to keep in rhythm. But I just want to let you know, dear listener, that... I keep you in mind, and I keep these podcasts in mind. And the main reason that I've been a bit distracted is because I'm just spending a lot of mental energy on putting the architecture, putting the pieces together right, the foundation, the architecture of the Weather of the Mind School. Because we have these four subjects, habits, goals, relationships, and nature and culture. But then each subject has its own three or four sub-subjects. So just making sure that it's in logical order, it's in intuitive order, and and just fleshing it out and connecting it to materials that I've already produced, connecting it to materials that I am working on in the future, worksheets, audio. So very exciting time, but I've been a little neglectful of the uh, podcast flow, so I just want to let you know I'm mindful of that. Just doing the best I can over here. But uh, I thought the last two episodes where we talked about, uh, we had an interview with Kaylee Forsyth, talked a lot about plants and emotional health and and the power of relationship with plants. Really insightful and and worth checking out. And coming up soon, I've already done an interview that will be produced an episode or two. And this interview coming up in a few weeks is with Jake Seegers. And he is a local physical trainer and and a real innovator because he's connecting physical training with role-playing, storytelling, D&D, Dungeons & Dragons type of role-playing games, improvisational games with the physical training. I love to see innovation and I think he's on to some great things there. So I had a great conversation with him last week. So keep an eye out for that podcast coming soon. As usual, drop a line anytime, weatherofthemind at gmail.com or right on the website, weatherofthemind.org. Love to hear from you. If you have any requests for episodes or topics you want you want me to explore in the episode, please drop me a line. Okay, today's episode, I have been actually carrying it with me for many weeks. In my notebook, uh, it's already two and a half weeks ago that I wrote Weather or Mind 106 Outline. The title of the episode at that point was Requiem for a Tree. And then it changed to Eulogy for a Mighty Oak. And I think I'm going to settle on Tribute to a Mighty Oak. So this is the Tribute to a Mighty Oak episode. Gather around, get comfortable, try to tell you a little story. And my stories often are very setting-oriented. So... Try to picture the setting, if you will. A suburban Long Island house. <laughs> Simple, a little plot of land, a few a few miles from Queens, not too far from the city, not too far from the ocean. And that's where I that's where I grew up. Family was in Queens, but they moved out to Long Island when I was a, a little little baby. One of the biggest challenges for humans is not to take things for granted. But it's so easy to take things for granted. Things we love so much. Right now, I feel like at this point in my life, I'm in love with road biking. But even some days, I'm out there on a beautiful ride. And I'm just like, 
Am I getting used to this? Am I starting to take this, these rolling hills, these colorful fields, coming across a fox or a turtle? Am I starting to take this for granted? Am I getting used to it? And I think this is one of the challenges of the human brain. How do we deal with this challenge? So one of the, the ways people deal with this challenge of taking things for granted is, for, is creating little rituals. And I think this story really begins with my mom and her subtle devotion to rituals, especially ritual, rituals of all sorts, but especially rituals that had to do with nature and conviviality, nature and cafe culture. The mind of the child is very much influenced by the setting in which it grows up in. And if you walk into our family's home, which is curated by both my parents, but especially, especially my mom, there is a, a real clear devotion to nature and to conviviality. Meaning that if there are pictures, there aren't many photographs, they're mostly old paintings or silhouette paper cuts, but these are of people playing music under, under a tree, a small gathering, having a picnic. There's a very romantic 19th century vibe in my house. And the nature is predominant. Pictures of fish and fishermen, pictures of trees and fields, but also urban landscapes. But everything's human scale. It's small. It's it's it is very 19th century. You can see there's a there's the romanticism of my family was really and myself is very much laid in motion by this imagery. Now the imagery extended beyond just the walls because my mom created a cafe culture, meaning that dinners were meant to be convivial. They were you sit down at 6:30 approximately, and you eat together and you talk. <laughs> there was, I mean, this is before you would bring a screen to the table, but that would be uh, very much shunned upon. I mean, this was time to just be with each other. And it was, we took it for granted because it was normal. But now that we live in other parts of our lives where that might not be the normal ritual, you realize how valuable and important that was. The imagery on the walls, the routine of the meals. But then we go to the backyard, and it's just a small suburban backyard. But there's still a lot can be done there. Because you walk out of the stoop, and off to the left, along the fence on the left, is a, is a whole little batch of garden area. So depending on the time of the year, you might see tomatoes and zucchini and basil. Uh, maybe have some marigolds on the edges to, to deter some of the... Uh, did marigolds deter insects or rabbit? I forget. But they are nice deterrent and quite pretty. I remember collecting the seeds from the dried marigolds when I was a young age, six or seven, and putting the seeds into envelopes for the next season. And that, just that awareness of collecting seeds that we can use for next year, it just seemed, ah, I don't have to go to the store and buy these seeds. This is a, this is a plant that, that is, is alive and then it passes, but then it leaves seeds to reproduce next year. We're just kind of working with nature here. So you see all these subtle lessons that just appear if you set 
setting 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 sets things in motion right the setting there's something about the word even setting set set is it the foundation the architecture what we do with our property how we prioritize our land no matter how small and humble that land is okay so we got the garden and then right next to the garden is a little little mini barn it's a shed but it looks like a little red barn so again just setting kind of a rural pastoral nature-oriented, an appreciative vibe. Then you get behind to the side of the barn and you had the compost pile. And the compost pile was mind-expanding our whole life because, again, we had trash, but we also had compost. We always were diverging our, our waste streams. And all the foodstuffs that we had, all the compostables would go out to the compost pile every night. And every once in a while, you'd turn the compost pile. And the compost pile was, was an impressive, probably about five to six feet across the circle and probably about three feet high. So it always was this big, like this big dynamic process, this, this beast to itself, the compost pile. And it was really important to us. And then you go around the yard you get to this nice azalea bushes and a nice little rock, rock-surrounded little garden and a cherry tree. And then next to that, you had our fish pond. And the fish pond we built probably when I was 10 or 11. So this thing has been around for 30 years. And the amazing thing is, is the, bond, the pond has, knock on wood, never leaked. And it's also never needed to be restocked. So we built this pond... Uh, my dad, myself, and my brothers. And, you know, it's only like eight feet by five feet. a small and two and a half feet deep. A little fish pond. But it has a really viable, healthy little ecosystem. So you're starting to see, even in this backyard, you have this little ecosystem of the compost pile, which plugs into the gardens. And then you have this pond area. We also have a back patio for barbecues and outdoor meals under an umbrella. So this is the setting I grew up in. But there's one other element that I saved for last. Because it is the biggest element and the oldest element and perhaps one of the most transcendent elements. And, and probably, if you ask my folks, this is the reason that we lived in this house. And that is behind the house, behind the barn, next to the compost pile. There is this massive, seemingly ageless oak tree. This mighty white oak. The kind of oak where I take my long arms and I can only get a little more than halfway around it. This tree has always been this massive, massive umbrella. When I was a youngster, we thought, maybe this is 150 years old. And that was 40 years ago. Perhaps I'm a little bit off and it's only 120 or 130, but maybe it's 160, 170. So this oak, when I was a youngster, it was already massive. It was already old. It was already this umbrella that draped its branches over one, two, three, four, five, five different properties. But it was our oak tree. It grew off of our property. It was the umbrella of the oak tree basically covered our whole backyard. So we grew up under this oak tree. The backyard was always under this massive umbrella. And the oak tree 
it was transcendent in many ways because for first of all it was clearly there when this was not suburbs when this was potato fields but was it there before the potato fields what was there before the potato fields there were indians that lived on long island were they still around so the tree just automatically connected us to history we lay under that tree and look up at its at its expansive branches and it seemed that once the the main trunk of this tree rose for 30 or 40 feet then when it branched off it's almost like it sent out six or seven whole other oak trees in different directions so when i heard that the oak tree was suddenly very very ill and had and was diagnosed with oak wilt the DEC was saying it had to be cut down most likely when i heard this news a few weeks ago this this spun this whole podcast this got me thinking about this is very sad it's time to write a requiem for this mighty tree this tree how can trees mean so much to us there's a few trees on our property there's a blue spruce in the front yard that's been there my whole life there's a linden tree that that we planted when my younger brother was born which is tremendously beautiful wonderful tree and it's been awesome to watch it grow there's something slow and timeless and stable about trees that is seemingly a wonderful contrast to the tremendous chaos and the the dynamic changing nature of modern society trees have always been calm and stable healthy trees of certain varieties have lived much longer than human lives ever have been but now even though we live longer the speed and change in chaos is greater so the stability and calmness of the trees can just strike us i ask you dear reader dear reader i ask you dear listener what trees have meant the most to you in your life and if none have i encourage you to seek them out ideally trees close to our homes where we might sit and rest and just be with the tree like i say right now i have this sugar maple outside of my porch and i can see it right now so this maple and i have spent the last 4 years in company in appreciation maybe not mutual appreciation but at least appreciation going this way it's kind of cool to think maybe the tree might appreciate me somehow i encourage you to think about these trees and i also would encourage you to think about what what we what you put on your walls and what does that revere and what does that accentuate what do you what do you put on your desk next to you where you sit what do we surround ourselves with and how does that change because here let's go back to this main recurring point and that is we take things for granted that don't change so how do we keep things fresh and i want to go back to my mom's insight and that was about ritual the importance of ritual holidays you do fun things you have a good meal st patrick's day july 4th the christian holidays whatever you just make it fun you make it about having a good meal and having a good time but you do that often because we got to eat all the time right 
So we ritualized Sunday and we had a, a good Sunday morning ritual. We'd go to church, we'd go to the bakery, we'd, have, we'd come home from church and have you know, fresh poppy seed rolls and a black and white treat or a jelly donut. So we do things different on Sunday. But what I really appreciate in retrospect is my mom's reverence for the seasons and how she made the intention to to themize some things in the house seasonally. Subtle thing, changing a display on the front window or on the main table in the living room or a few different things that hang on the wall. Like right now is fall and I could picture some of the things that would be appearing in our family's house like this cute little scarecrow character that that would appear in the fall. And that's because my mom's intentionality to kind of Add this seasonal appreciation. When you make the efforts to appreciate the seasons and change them in a real mindful, caring way in a space, you engender this appreciation for the change in seasons. And in a way, the change of seasons is a way of of not taking life for granted. To see the oak tree in the wintertime, the barren trees of winter, images of snow and sled, really appreciating winter that season, that part of a year. And then spring comes and obviously we look to the budding trees, the tree changes. But then also in the house, we have images of flowers and rebirth and a brightness. And in summertime, uh, summertime, the trees are full bloom and it's, it's big, it's green leaves are and the sun trying to sneak through, and the speckled leaves in the backyard, barbecues, outdoor conviviality. And inside in the summer, the theme is beach and sand and seashells and shorebirds. These birds and these shells that have been collected over the years by my mom are displayed on the front break front or the table. And then comes fall and the colors of orange and the yellows and browns. A cute little personal anecdote is I purchased a little tapestry. It was orange and yellow and brown and it said harvest across the top. And it's meant to be hung on a wall or a door. And it has this field, this plowed field and and just... The, the, the classic autumn scene. But it, it's really quite beautiful and I could picture it hanging uh, at my folks' house still in the fall time on the back door. She would hang it right in the back door. So again, it's these little things, these little things, these seasonality help us appreciate, appreciate. And again, maybe trees, trees are naturally seasonal. So they help they help connect us to the seasonality of life. Something they really, something they give us. So the day I heard that the tree was, was dying and was going to have to be taken down imminently a few weeks ago, I was sad, but I accepted it. When somebody or some tree or some animal dies young, it's tragic. When some person or tree or animal dies late, later in life, it seems more natural and it's easier to accept. I can't imagine what the home down in Long Island would be like without that massive umbrella of a tree. And I know that day will come, but spoke to my folks yesterday. They told me that 
the DEC got back to them, and it was not oak wilt. It was a different fungus that is less threatening and just only damages the trees a little bit at the end of the season. And they recover by the next year. And it's mostly because the tree has been under stress this year because they've gotten more rain than usual down in Long Island this year. So we have this news that the, the tree does, does not have to be taken down. So it's really tremendous and exciting. But we also have this gift. We had this near-death experience or this near-passing experience. The genius might be in near-death experience, near-passing, when we are reminded that things can be taken from us, things that we hold dear to us. It is the nature of the changing, the wild changing world we live in. That's the default. Things come and go, they ebb and flow. So once we're reminded of that, it scares us, but it also allows us to, to grow and to grow a little bit deeper and broader in our perspective. So that day, the day though I found out the tree was passing, I went for a walk and I walked, I walked through a, an old graveyard and it was nice. It was nice just to spend time with death and to be okay with it, to be at peace with it, to accept it, to be aware of it, to allow it to balance life in a way that keeps me, keeps me awake. I'd rather be someone who's a little bit too aware of death because of my nature and because of things I keep in mind. Because I think it doesn't make me this sullen, depressive person. It makes me more vivacious, more appreciative of being alive, more appreciative of, of being healthy and alive, if, if I find myself healthy and alive, which I do right now. This near death of this tree also gives me the opportunity to give a tribute, not just a eulogy. We have this, one, we have this problem where we don't give enough tributes in this society. We give eulogies or requiems. So many times when I'm at a, a funeral or a, a eulogy, you know, I'm, I'm hearing the speeches at someone's passing, and I, I almost wish we could have given this 15 years ago. Uh, this person would have appreciated hearing these things. Um, so maybe when we, I don't know, maybe there's some, some wisdom there. How, how do we make sure we give more tributes and less, uh, as a, not as opposed to requiems, but uh, it's a different thing. Let's, how do we let people know we appreciate them? How do we remind ourselves of all the good things that are in our lives? It's like the tough things come and hit us in the face and we wake up, Phew, oh man, I gotta deal with this. Phew, oh, I gotta deal with that. But sometimes the good things are constant and quiet like the tree, like a friend, like a partner like a parent, like a child, who knows, who knows. Ooh, we're getting deep and soulful today. So I went for this walk and I checked out these, these gravestones and I thought about all the gravestones there. Uh, predominantly the gravestones are 19th century. So, you know, you see John Stewart, born 1814, died 1876. So I'm thinking of these characters, and they, they lived not too long ago. For me, the 1800s is not that long ago. The more I study history, 1800s feels like our uncles or our recent ancestors, uncles and aunts and grandmothers and grandfathers. 
So these guys and gals, they died in the 1800s, and they put down, put down this really heavy stone. And I'm going to carve, carve my name into this stone so that someone can be walking by here in 2021 and, and remember, oh, this guy, this guy. And I don't know this specific guy or the specific gal. And the stones kind of, they kind of blur as a collective. I'm not, I don't have any relatives I'm looking for specifically. I, I do read the names and, and once in a while there's a little bit of a poem or an aphorism, which I think is kind of cool. But what strikes me is a lot of the etchings, these, these carved names into stones, are already wearing away. The water, just the rain, 160 years of rain, 160 years of weather, slowly wearing away at these rocks. And these people's names are slowly wearing back into the rock. And then I take a walk right around the bend, and there's a gorge. And there you see this river that's carved through the earth deep. I'm at the edge of this graveyard. I look down to the gorge. Well, I walk one block, and I look down to this gorge. And I'm standing on basically an 80-foot cliff. An 80-foot cliff looking down at this river. This river that's been flowing more or less, incessantly for thousands of years. Just flowing, flowing, flowing. I mean, it blows my mind when I sit beside the movement of water as much as when I sit under the umbrella of a mighty tree, a mighty oak, or a mighty maple. Because the mighty oak or the mighty maple might have been there for 150, 200 years. And even you go out and you stand next to a mighty sequoia and maybe it's a thousand years. But this, this stream, this stream has been carving this rock, carving this gorge for, I don't, I don't know, tens of thousands of years. This stream has just been flowing, flowing, flowing every day. It's like I get the same sort of deep reverent feeling by, this, by the ocean when you sit there and you're watching the, ray, well, the waves. Again, it's something about the movement of the water. These waves have just been crashing Day and night, day and night, wave crash, wave crash, day and night, month per month, season to season, year to year, hundreds of years to hundreds of years. To touch timelessness is to touch the great mystery of life. It can disturb us. It can also ground us. And... I encourage us to in, in, engage in that space. It seems that nature, nature, we come from nature, and nature, even if we, whether you are a theist or an atheist or somewhere in between, everyone has the ability to connect to nature. I want to finish with an excerpt from Herman Hesse. Usually they say don't finish with someone else's words, finish with your own words. But I've given plenty of words, and I am a huge Herman Hesse fan, someone who has been a big influence on me, certainly in my 20s, in my very anxiety-ridden years. Reading, reading Damien comforted me greatly. Herman Hesse, born in 1877, July, July 2nd, 1877, and lived into the 1950s, so saw quite a lot of life and was able to bring a lot of the 
interesting and insightful philosophies of the day into stories. And he certainly is a, a nature lover and just a beautiful, a beautiful painter uh, of scenes as a writer. So I'm going to read this excerpt. It's a little bit, it's taken me a few minutes, but it's really sweet. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It came from this book that he compiled about trees, and it was towards the last years of his life. I think it came out in 1952. Quote, For me, trees have always been the most penetrating preachers. I revere them when they live in tribes and families and forests and groves. And even more, I revere them when they stand alone. They are like lonely persons, not like hermits who have stolen away out of some weakness, but like great solitary men, like Beethoven and Nietzsche. In their highest bows, the world rustles. Their roots rest in infinity, but they do not lose themselves there. They struggle with all the force of their lives for one thing only, to fulfill themselves according to their own laws, to build up their own form, to represent themselves. Nothing is holier, nothing is more exemplary than a beautiful, strong tree. When a tree is cut down and reveals its naked death wound to the sun, one can read its whole history in the luminous inscribed disc of its trunk. In the rings of its years, its scars, all the struggle, all the suffering, all the sickness, all the happiness and prosperity stand truly written, the narrow years and the luxurious years. The attacks withstood, the storms endured. And every young farm boy knows that the hardest and noblest wood has the narrowest rings. That high on the mountains and in continuing danger, the most indestructible, the strongest, the ideal trees grow. Trees are sanctuary. Whoever knows how to speak to them, whoever knows how to listen to them, can learn the truth. They do not preach learning and precepts. They preach, undeterred by particulars, the ancient law of life. A tree says, a kernel is hidden in me, a spark, a thought. I am life from eternal life. The attempt and the risk that the eternal mother took with me is unique. Unique the form and veins of my skin. Unique the smallest play of leaves in my branches and the smallest scar on my bark. I was made to form and reveal the eternal in my smallest special detail. A tree says, My strength is trust. I know nothing about my fathers. I know nothing about the thousand children that every year spring out of me. I live out the secret of my seed to the very end, and I care for nothing else. I trust that God is in me. I trust that my labor is holy. Out of this trust I live. When we are stricken and cannot bear our lives any longer, then a tree has something to say to us. Be still. Be still. Look at me. Life is not easy. Life is not difficult. Those are childish thoughts. Let God speak within you, and your thoughts will grow silent. You are anxious because your path leads away from mother and home. But every step and every day lead you back again to the mother. Home is neither here nor there. Home is within you, or home is nowhere at all. A longing to wander tears my heart when I hear trees rustling in the wind at evening. If one listens to them silently for a long time, this longing reveals its kernel, its meaning. 
it is not so much a matter of escaping from one's own suffering, though it may seem to be so. It is a longing for home, for a memory of the mother, for new metaphors for life. It leads home. Every path leads homeward. Every step is birth. Every step is death. Every grave is mother. So the tree rustles in the evening when we stand uneasy before our own childish thoughts. Trees have long thoughts, long breathing and restful. Just as they have longer lives than ours, they are wiser than we are as long as we do not listen to them. But when we have learned how to listen to trees, then the brevity and the quickness and the childlike hastiness of our thoughts achieve an incomparable joy. Whoever has learned how to listen to trees no longer wants to be a tree. He wants to be nothing except what he is. That is home. That is happiness. Boom. Ho, 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 ho. Herman Hesse, alive in our alive in spirit always, along with the trees. I want to just repeat that last sentence. Whoever has learned how to listen to the trees no longer wants to be a tree. He wants to be nothing except what he is. That is home. That is happiness. Ooh, okay. We talked about rituals. We gave an appreciation to building a good physical home and a property that, that really engenders what's important to us. We thought about how that affects the mind of the child growing up in that space. So when we think about our own homes, what are we, what are we revering? What are we ritualizing? What are we saying? This is important. This is important. And let's give thanks to the mighty trees. The little trees that we watch grow up. The mighty trees which we inherit from our ancestors. Ah, give thanks for nature and its lessons and its calmness amongst the chaos. Let's remember we're part of nature. Let's drink up that nature and give thanks for that water. Let's get our blood pulsing and experience all that good oxygen in our lungs. We're part of nature, and that part of nature means we're supposed to move. They say hunter and gatherers would move at 10 k about 10 kilometers a day, 6 miles. So let's get moving, but when we move, let's use that time if we can to also appreciate the sky and the trees and nature. Kill two birds at one stone. Exercise that nature within and connect with that nature that surrounds us. All right, living and learning. Onward and perhaps upward. <laughs> Give thanks. I appreciate you. Drop me a line if you so desire. Patience, perseverance. Have a great one. Give thanks. Bye-bye.